Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. The featured new release this week is The Blues Don't Care by Paul D. Marks. Bobby Saxon lives in a world that isn't quite ready for him. He's the only white musician in an otherwise all-black swing band at the famous club Alabama in Los Angeles during World War II. And that isn't the only thing unique about him. As if being different isn't enough to deal with, in order to get a permanent gig with the band, Bobby must first solve a murder that one of the band members is falsely accused of in that racially prejudiced society. The Blues Don't Care by Paul D. Marks is now available through Down and Out's website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all your favorite bookstores. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of mystery, murder, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance that's meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no breaks, no fakes, no retakes, uh, unless it's really bad and then he makes me start all over again. And well, truth be told, it's the height of pilot season here in Indiana, so I have my bottle of water and my mute button. And if you hear an extended piano play, well, that's just pollen doing its magic. This is season one. The first half of the season comes from my book, Widow's Run, which was published in 2019 by Down and Out Books. If you love clever, sharp-edged mysteries and thrillers, check out Down and Out on the web. Today's episode builds from the previous. Really, you have to listen in order for them to make sense. Start with the episode called What a Lovely Corpse You Have and catch up to us from there. We'll be waiting for you. We've listed a cast of characters in the show notes to help you keep track of the players. To recap, our hero, Diamond, has faked her death, burying the mainstream suburban professional she was to resurrect her CIA cover. Why? She needs to do what the police won't, investigate her husband's death. In the last episode, Diamond arrived in Rome, Italy and met a statuesque woman harboring security footage of that fateful night. Liberating the footage was easy, watching it was another story. Two surprises emerged. First, another nerd food scientist, Francisco Thalen, died the same night as Gabrielle. And second, before his death, Gabrielle had given another woman his room key. Her teenage cyberlord, Andrew Dixon, unearthed the name and address of the woman suspected of being Gabrielle's lover, Ilsa Duma Whatever. A friend of Gabrielle's sister, Ilsa shared only his books, her books with Gabrielle. His notebook had gotten mixed in with hers, and she discovered two days later she attempted to return it, only to discover that Gabrielle had died. With the notebook now in her possession, Diamond turns to the other piece of information Dixon found, the license plate number of the car that killed her husband. Today's story is about family, the price of secrets, and a business deal gone wrong. This is episode seven, where does an elephant hide the evidence?
Under the scalding, beating shower spray, my brain worked on the progress made in the last episode. I came to Rome because I believed Gabrielle had been pushed into that road. I had a trainer tell me beliefs were for churches, that we dealt in facts, in knowledge, in knowing, but sometimes all you had to go on was faith. Today, I knew Dr. Gabrielle Ruchinsky was the target of assassination. Cross the Francisco Thalen evidence with the hotel surveillance and corroborate that by a credible witness and people we have moved from the church to the courtroom. Today, I should focus on the how, which would point me to the who and the why, which brought me to my next thought. Shower off, towel on, phone up. Dixon, how did you find Ilsa? Hey, Diamond, I didn't expect you to call. I don't do chit-chat before coffee. How did you find her? I accessed Doc's email. I know he liked emailing better than texting, so I figured if he was going to meet somebody, he'd, you know, he'd have an email. And I was right. Maybe my ears didn't work before coffee either. Did you say you accessed his email? His university email. It hasn't been used for over a year. Well, just because you don't use something doesn't mean it goes away. It's an e-trail. It's, it's like forever, like infinity. Or until the technology changes and the system it's on isn't supported anymore. Even then, it doesn't go away. It's more like the door's locked and the key was, you know, kind of like lost. Thank God I only listened to every third word. How long have you been hacking, Dixon? I don't know. Maybe five years? Since you were 12? Yeah, I sounded old, talking in my top register, glaring at the phone like I could see through it to the slickster on the other end. Something like that, Dix was matter-of-fact. Me going school teacher on him didn't have more of an effect than maybe a second. Once I got settled in my place, I got bored, so, you know, I took a look. A place. You got, you found a place this fast? He had been squatting on my couch, and I expected to kick him off of it when I got back. Yeah, I mean, I read a bunch of Doc's emails, but most of it didn't make sense. I knew he was smart, but he's like Sheldon smart. Hmm. Any from Buford Winston? Yeah, Buford. I remember Buford. Buford. Apparently Buford made an impression. How about Francisco Thalen? Silence hung for a moment. No, I don't remember him. Adrenaline jolted my little gray cells. I want you to read the ones from Buford. Let's start there. Who is Buford? The son of a big bitch, big ag lobbyist. He works for a place called Ag Now. He and Gabriel were always at each other's throats. Huh. Keys clicked on a keyboard. They used a lot of big words, but I don't remember threats. Dix was still young. The threats are veiled. Buford's not stupid enough to put in an email that he was going to kill Gavriel. Can you get me those emails? <laughs> I could picture the eye roll that went with that snort. On to the license plate. How did you get it? Oh, you'll like this. I was thinking about how to get the tag. And my friend Ru... Uh, this guy I know is kick-ass with, you know, pictures. He used this program that used math and statistics to figure out what the most likely answer was. Dixon got off on this stuff. The more he spoke, the faster he went. It wasn't perfect, but we could make out a few numbers. Then I tapped into the traffic camera system. That's my area of expertise. They say that they only keep the loops for a week, but like I said, e-trails live forever. 
I looked at the cameras on the streets close to the hotel and caught the fucker. Ha <laughs> ha, suck on that. Not you, Diamond, the, the fucking driver. The energy of youth. You couldn't do anything but shake your head and be happy you outgrew it and, well, be happier that it was on your side. I knew what you meant, Dix. Carlo ran the plate. We're going to pay the, vis- the pay a visit to the driver in the morning. Well, what can I do? There's got to be something else. The same trainer told me no one could do it alone. Anyone who thought they could was an idiot. Dead or alive, I was no idiot. I want to see copies of Gavriel's work. If he was killed here at an Ag World Summit, we have to consider he was killed for his work. He had a grant to study modifications to improve the crop yield in water-poor environments. He focused on quinoa. <laughs> quinoa. Sounds like a Chinese toilet bowl cleaner. Dicks. It's a very balanced, nutritious food. Aztec warriors use it in their diet. I'm going to upload some security video to you. I want you to dissect it like a frog. I want to know the to and froms of every person who had contact with Gavriel. Okay, I'll send you a security link. I can do, um, maybe another hour or two. Damn, time zones. I checked the clock on my phone. What are you still doing up at two in the morning? I'm reading Doc's emails. I have school tomorrow, but I'll skip it. Don't skip. Hear me? We don't want that kind of attention. Dix yawned. I just sent you the link. I don't mind skipping school. <sighs> Sleep, school, then help me find a killer. I'm counting on you, Dix. Yeah? On me? I heard it. He felt important instead of tolerated. Sleep, school, dissect videos. Yep. Call me tomorrow night. Carlo and I zipped through the countryside in a car one model size up from the toddler toys of my suburbia days. The electric blue two-door fit me, Carlo, and enough air to keep us alive until we reached our destination. Hugo Franzetti. Like any good Italian in his late 20s, Hugo lived with his mother. With his spotty employment record, it was probably all he could afford. The only asset to his name was a Fiat. A quick search of the make and model revealed a bumblebee masquerading as a car. Hugo liked going places fast. Not a surprise, I mean, he's Italian. There was a chain of tickets through May of last year. Then nothing. A few months ago, the plate expired. My gut wasn't liking the way things were setting up, so I dressed for trouble. Good fitting clothes engineered to move with me. Boots I could run, climb, or kick ass in. Leather jacket, hiding the gun I borrowed from Carlo. I had a knife in my ankle and one up my sleeve. I kept the blonde hair and tinted eyes of Selena Mata. It was her ID in my, in my bag. Pieces were coming together. Ilsa, the videos, now Franzetti. I couldn't help being anxious, wanting to know how he fit into the picture. How much longer, Carlo? Carlo glanced at the dashboard. Not long. Enjoy the spring. It's very beautiful here in Italia. Save it for the tourists. I opened the file Carlo provided. The driver's license photo showed a man in his prime, years before the paunch and disillusionment set in. Hugo had high cheekbones and hollow cheeks. Thick brown hair, rich and curly, sat atop the head. Do you send this to Dixon? See, to Dix. Carlo took a sweeping exit ramp, putting us onto a smaller road. 
Hills rolled lazily along, basking in the Mediterranean sun. Small houses on large properties dotted the road, set apart by fields newly planted. Carlo downshifted, letting the car roll into a driveway that was more grass and less gravel. This was the road much less traveled. He parked in a cleared area, avoiding the flowers blooming in the full glory of spring. Carlo dug into a black duffel bag on the back seat. He handed me a name badge. I'd buy it was official. If I was blind. Oh, things were going to get interesting. I clipped the badge onto my jacket and turned to Carlo. You know I don't speak Italian. You don't need to speak. Just look, what is the word? Tough. Just look tough. Right. Alligator meat, shoe leather, and me. Carlo took point, knocking on the front door. A dog answered. As we ate, waited for a human, I tried to picture the man who killed my husband living here. The flower beds bordering the house were mature and well attended. Roses bobbed their heads, dancing to the rhythm of the wind. Where the flowers had been doted on, though, the house had been neglected. The roof was in need of repair, and so did a shutter, and, and the trim on the windows really needed some attention. A woman opened the door who once may have been over five foot tall, but she clearly had receded an inch or two. She stood with her shoulders square, her white hair piled atop her head. The wrinkles in the corner of her eyes had been carved by laughter and bronzed by the sun. Light brown eyes ringed in a darker brown twinkled in welcome. A mud of a dog, plump and happy for company, competed in the space for the doorway. Buongiorno. Carlo ducked his head, bowing quickly. Buongiorno, signora Franzetti. I didn't understand a thing he said after that, but then I didn't need to. The soft smile slid from Mama Franzetti's face. Those twinkling eyes darkened and saddened. She opened the door wider and, with a sweep of her arm, invited us in. The house was a tapestry for the nose. Wood fires and fresh bread, simmering tomatoes. Oh, my stomach growled. Carlos spoke as we followed Mama into the communal space between the living and dining rooms. Carlos' tone was firm but respectful. It was the same lilting Italian he used to sweet-talk the panties off the hotel planner. The reaction from Mama Frizzetti was very different, thank God. Mama put one hand to her throat and planted the other on the back of a sturdy chair. She shook her head as if she couldn't accept what Carlo was saying. No, Mama said. Then it was her turn to speak in the same flowing manner as the hills surrounding us. Carlo shook his head, apologetic, but and he gestured to me, the bad cap. I crossed my arms under my chest and gave him a deadpan glare. Mr. John Carlo, I spoke in English. There was no point running a bluff I couldn't back. Un momento, un momento. Carlo held his palms out, asking me for time. I turned away with a dismissive hand. Let him have his time, and I will begin to assess our scene. The living room was only slightly bigger than my hotel room. Sure, it was neat and comfy and clean. There was no television. A fireplace was swept clean, but had seasoned the room and conjured images of campfires and s'mores. A doorway tucked in the corner led to a narrow hallway. The hardwood floors were polished by generations of lives lived. Four doors opened to a hall. Two open, two closed. Open, a small bathroom. Fixtures stained with time were polished until they shined as much as they could. 
open, a small bedroom furnished for a woman with a thick quilt covering the bed and small trinkets dotting a low dresser. Lined on the back edge were framed pictures of a laughing, growing boy. Hugo, I'm guessing. Closed door. This room was colder than the rest of the house. It must have been closed off, but the dust had not taken up residence here. A twin bed was pushed against one wall, a dresser, a chair, and a chest suitable for Blackbeard's headquarters. Well, this was Hugo's room. The lock on the chest was familiar. I used to pick them just for fun, so wham, bam, and they're open, ma'am. Inside were all the mementos you'd expect from a good boy to have in his bedroom. Skin mags, five male envelopes filled with bodies in compromising positions, two guns, three knives of varying blades and lengths, and a small collection of wicked throwing stars. I spared a minute for under his bed, nada, but under his mattress, well, there was a key to a P.O. box, and it was clearly marked for the absent-minded blackmailer. Just an educated guess. The dresser has nothing, uh, just some good quality clothes. The last door, well, the last door was the bedroom that Mama must have shared with Papa. Their wedded room was fresh as a daisy, like the couple had just left for a day. In fact, if I didn't know Mama slept in the bedroom next to the bath, I would have thought she still used this room. And maybe she did. The rocking chair next to the window had held a sweater in progress. A glass with water sat on the coaster in front of a radio. Now at the end of the hall was a door, and that door yet led to a rear yard. The green thumb had been at work out here, a garden rivaling the size of the house bathed in the morning sun. A cat daintily stepped across the rows, unconcerned by my presence. The beauty Mama Franzetti infused in her home ended about 50 feet from her house. Beyond, nature ruled. If Hugo is in his late 20s, then Mama Franzetti should be in her 50s or 60s. No, she, she looked like she was a good 70s. I mean, a good 70s, but still, 70s. Grandmama Franzetti? Beyond the garden, the wind ran through the grass, providing a fleeting image of a path. Of course I followed it. Down a shadow valley, but not completely hidden from a house was a small wooden structure, smaller than a garage and larger than a shed. No windows, the same rookie-class lock held the door shut. This one took an extra two minutes. Weather had taken its toll. Light from the morning cut a swath across the storage and workspace. The only feet inside this shack recently were the arachnoid variety. No electricity. There was an oil lamp on the workbench. No light. There was a modern camping Latin. Batteries dead. Hugo must have inherited his grandmother's propensity for neatness. Simple metal shelving ran along two walls. The third had a workshop-styled wood bench with a few tools sitting out. Salvaged kitchen cabinets were shoved under the bench and hung on the wall above. I opened one of the doors. My eyes were adjusting, but it still was hard to make out distinct shapes. Half the cabinets were empty. The others contained crystal, porcelain, tablets and phones, jewelry. You just have your fingers in everything, don't you, Hugo? All right. <laughs> we know what he was doing.
So I left the heavy air of the shack and I, yeah, coughed up a lung or two. The dust was two inches thick and the license plate had expired in November, so time had had its way here. I didn't like where this was going. I kept following the path. Could there be another treasure trove? The land rolled down to a stream lined with trees and growth. The path followed the contours of the earth but stayed determinedly aimed for the stream. The path was invisible in the the plant growth, but my feet knew the ruts were there. I tripped over them a time or two. Diamond! Diamond! My name was clear but far from strong. If the wind had been blowing the other direction, I wouldn't have heard Carlo. I guess he'd given up on Selena. Down here! Follow the path! I wondered if he could hear me upwind. Then he crested the ridge and waved, relief on his face. Did you search the shed? He thumbed back over his shoulder. I briefed him on my findings. What did Mama have to say? Grandmother. Signora Franzetti hasn't seen Hugo since last May. She didn't know the exact day. He had a job in Rome and came home when he could. The last time he visited, he stayed for three days. She remembered because he rarely stayed more than overnight. He was always needed in Rome. We continued down the path. To the untrained eye, we would just be a handsome couple enjoying a pretty morning, talking about the foibles and idiosyncrasies of life. Carlo shoved his hands in his pockets. Do you think Hugo killed Rubchinsky? Hugo was into blackmail and robbery. What connection could he have to Gavriel? Why would he kill him? It could have been an accident, like the police said. A guy like Hugo would run, or... Or it could have been the job his grandmother said. A hit. And where is he? His grandmother is convinced he is working hard at a job that only a man of Hugo's talents could do. Remembering the fake badge on my breast, I ripped the plastic off and shoved it in my pocket. Who did you tell her I was with? tax collection. (laughs) I told her you were a training officer from the United States and I could get fired and she would go to jail if we didn't clear up Hugo's tax bill. Death and taxes, the only thing certain in life. Where are we going, Diamond? Wherever this path goes. Have you noticed the ruts? See, from tires, but they are old. I nodded. Maybe Hugo had another storehouse. As we neared the stream, the thick line of foliage had an opening about ten feet wide. Low branches on either side hung limply from their boughs, and the brush between them had been worn out. I scanned left and right as I entered the denser woods. Carlo mirrored my movement. We saw it at the same time. A flat panel, grime over the bright yellow with the license plate in question. Carlo took the driver's side, and I covered the passengers. In the filter light, The body was difficult to see. Dressed in black, it was nearly upside down on the passenger side. Carlo and I did what needed to be doing. God damn it, I had the messy side. The Vic was male, gunshot wound to the left temple. The driver's window hadn't been broken, so the door must have been open at the time of the shot. The momentum took him into the passenger seat, but to get in the position he was in, somebody had to help him. Key's still in the ignition. Carlo worked from his angle, retrieving the wallet. It's him. I opened the glove box. Latex gloves, thank you very much. A knife, vehicle information, box of condoms, five balled-up papers, parking tickets. A metal snap told me Carlo worked the trunk. 
I came up for air and then I did a quick dive into the back seat. Now it was empty. Diamond! The tote bag yawned wide as Carlo held one handle, showing off a neat bundle of euros. In his other hand, pinched between his thumb and index finger, was my husband's smiling face. Two thousand euros hidden in the well where a tire would go. My hands curled into claws and then fists. A raw, unadulterated need to tear and destroy had me turning to the dead man and planting my boot in his shoulder. You worthless fuck. You waste of life. My leather boot punctuated each word. Carlo flicked off the safety and handed me his gun. In a thunderstorm of acid rain, words of hate and disgust were screamed in an insane rant from a voice I didn't recognize as my own. Every goddamn shell Carlos had went into the corpse of a man and a car. Then I turned my fury to heaven. This is your plan? This is your fucking omnipotent plan? You let a piece of shit like this and a man like Gabriel? And you're supposed to be great? I ended the conversation with a single finger salute and stalked out the way we came in. Take the bag, pull the car around. We're taking it all. Where are we going next? Well, that's it for this episode of Mysteries to Die For. In two weeks, we'll pick up the story with the next chapter. This little piggy went to the bank. If you enjoyed our twist on storytelling, help spread the word by telling a friend or leaving a review. For less than the cost of roses for Mama Franzetti's garden, you can join our body bag brigade to help support our show. You'll receive bonus content as our thanks. Mysteries to Die For was written by T.G. Wolf. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Widow's Run was written by T.G. Wolf and published by Down and Out Books. Until next time, keep your friends close and your enemies closer.